How's everybody doing today? Joe Biden's dog is under attack. Of all the criticisms of Joe Biden, his dog is now bearing the brunt of the criticisms. Um, I will do what might be the last ever secular talk segment on Rush Limbaugh, which is really something special because it's putting to rest um, a generation, really. A legacy is being put to rest. We used to do so many stories on Rush Limbaugh back in, you know, 2013, 14, 15. So it's, I mean, new chapter. It really does feel sort of crazy. I'll be discussing the insane price gouging going on in Texas right now. Really, really unfortunate what's happening to people in the state of Texas and the big business interests that are basically, at least as of right now, getting away scot-free with crimes. Um, Ted Cruz and Hannity try to defend his actions when he went to Cancun in the middle of the, of the winter storm crisis there and the energy crisis there. Um, I got a lot of stuff. Wall Street Bets is being defended by Fox Business. Um, I unfortunately have to go after my people over at Justice Democrats. It, it's not, uh, that's not, that's not pretty and that doesn't make me happy. So, like I said, a lot of stuff to get to. Let's get to it. I'm going to start with Joe Biden's dog. Newsmax and One American News Network are incredible. They're amazing. It's like, you know, it's like watching some sort of science experiment if you spend a little bit of time seeing what they're up to. So the new clip that went viral, this one is, uh, is Newsmax, although One American News Network does you know, pretty much the same thing or or very similar things. But um, this clip from Newsmax 
might actually, this is a bold call, but I'll make it anyway. This clip from Newsmax might be one of the most interesting and hilarious in Biden's entire first term. I know that's a bold claim because it just started, but it doesn't get any goofier than this. Look at the kind of criticism they decided to use against him. Did you see the dog? Let's see. I want to show you something I noticed. Doesn't he look a little, uh, a little rough? <laughs> I love dogs, but this dog needs a, a bath and a comb and uh, all kinds of love and care. I've never seen a dog in the White House uh, like this. I've, I remember Buddy. I remember Millie. I remember lots of dogs, but not a dog who seems... I don't know. I don't know how much love and care he is getting. Let's bring in the historians. I, I'm having fun with this, obviously, but I, I, I do want to talk about some stuff. Craig Shirley, Reagan biographer, presidential historian. Greg, welcome back. And Doug Weed, presidential historian, former advisor to George H.W. Bush. That's the White House where I remember Millie. Millie had, like, a staff, and they really took care of her. Very beautiful dog. This dog looks like from, I'm sorry, from the junkyard. And I love that dog, but he looks like he's not been well cared for. No, not, not at all. Well, thank you for having us. Uh, no, he looks very dirty and disheveled and uh, very unlike a presidential dog like uh, Millie or Victory or something else uh, in the past in the uh, president of the White House. What do you even say about that? What do you even say about that? I was willing to give it a pass if it was just a throwaway comment. It still would have been ridiculous if it was a throwaway comment. But I was willing to give it a pass if it was just off the top of the head, you're talking about something else, and you just sort of throw it out there and move on. Dog, no pun intended, dog, they did a segment on it. They did a segment. They brought on experts. They brought on historians to be like, yeah, I, uh, I happen to know quite a bit about history because I'm a historian, and I will say that this dog is... Worse than all the other presidential dogs. This is not a very presidential dog, if you ask me. So you need to understand that before this segment happened, they, in show prep, and when they were listing what they're going to do, they had, they had to have it written down, segment on Biden's dog. The whole point of the segment was to bash Joe Biden and his dog and use this as some sort of an argument as to why Biden and the Democrats are bad. And you heard what they said. Um, doesn't he look a little rough? He needs a bath and a comb and love and care. He looks like he's from the junkyard. He's not well cared for. He's an unpresidential dog. The dog does not look very presidential. See, what this reminds me of is when Sean Hannity criticized Barack Obama because he had a burger with mustard, or the time that uh, Barack and Michelle uh, did a pound and one of the idiots on Fox News called it a terrorist fist jab. That one was probably even worse, to be fair, um, because there's gross, like, you know, bigoted undertones and overtones, actually, is probably the better way to describe it. But, like, this is right-wing media in a nutshell. That's what I need everybody to understand, is that it's one thing to have a criticism, and it's a swing and a miss. It happens to everybody. It doesn't matter where you fall 
um, ideologically. It's a whole other thing to perpetually make the dumbest, silliest criticisms, to not have a real argument against Biden. And, and there are plenty of real arguments against Biden. But see, the problem for right-wing media is that all of those arguments come from Biden's left, because Biden is functionally a moderate Republican. So if you want to criticize him in a way that makes sense, you have to go after him for supporting various outsourcing deals, supporting the war in Iraq, supporting the Patriot Act. You know, it, this, is, this is the substance of an anti-Biden criticism. But if you're not going to go at it from that perspective, I mean, what's left? What's left is to say, hey, man, I know you're hawkish. You should be even more hawkish. Hey, man, you should cut taxes for the rich even more. Hey, your dog looks like shit. So maybe you should get a prettier dog or something, bro. Maybe you should eat a burger without mustard like a real man. Again, that was the Obama criticism. It just it shows you their mindset. The mindset is it literally doesn't matter what Biden does. They're going to criticize him. You know, it, the best example of this was Obamacare. Uh, you guys all know, the, know this, but a lot of people don't know this. Obamacare, the idea behind Obamacare is what's called an individual mandate system. And the individual mandate system is actually a conservative idea. It was birthed by right-wing think tanks. You know, the Heritage Foundation was one of the original, uh, you know, original outlets that wrote a policy paper on it. This is a policy that was at one point supported by people as far right as Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley. And the idea was this is our reform and it's separate from single-payer health care. It, it's separate from the government playing a more direct role, either with insurance or with care. So they, they wanted to keep everything in the private market. This is how you keep it in the private market. So it was a right-wing idea. They all supported it. And then when Obama came out for it, all of them ran away from it. They literally got zero Republican votes for something that was their own idea. That tells you everything you need to know about these people, both the, the Republican politicians and also right-wing media. Because they'll never give you that information. They'll never give you that context. All they know is close-minded, partisan drivel. And that's what this is. I mean, seriously, they're shitting on his dog. His dog! And, and it's so, like, you could sense how vituperative it is and how much, well, actually, you know, that, maybe that's not true. That's an interesting question. Do you get the sense it is completely and utterly put on, like this guy Greg Kelly, hilarious, two first name wonder, um, like he's just acting? Because I could see that a little bit. If somebody says, yeah, this guy's just a fucking actor. Look at what he's doing. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that he doesn't mean a goddamn word of it. Um, or the other option is he really does have those partisan blinders on and he chugged the Kool-Aid a long time ago. And so he really believes that anything he says against Biden is like, you know, ends justify the means. These guys are bad. These guys are evil. So I'll say whatever the hell I have to say to portray them in a negative light, even if I look ridiculous. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if he's just an actor or if he actually believes it or if it's some mix thereof. But listen, you thought it couldn't get sillier than like Fox News. Um, but Newsmax and One American News Network are trying really, really, really hard to carve out that space for themselves. And this is what happens when their original 
explosion in popularity was what? Was when Fox News refused to go along with the stop the steal conspiracies that had zero evidence for it. They knew Joe Biden won. They knew he was going to be inaugurated. They couldn't bring themselves to go down that ridiculous a path, even though they've gone down other very ridiculous paths. And so that's when One American News Network and Newsmax exploded in popularity. And, you know, all these people on the far right thought, I can't even trust Fox News anymore because they're not telling me the truth. And so people turn to these fringe networks, and this is what you get. Now they can't go all in on the stop the steal nonsense every day because Biden's already inaugurated. So what do you do? You have to fill the airwaves with more like Democrats are really bad nonsense, and they don't do policy criticism. So this is what you're left with. This is what you're left with. You're left with shitting on a freaking dog. I mean, it's hilarious, but it also shows how poisoned and toxic our politics are and how hyper-partisan things can be. And, um, you know, I hope that this is one of those top and so silly that it even has the potential to take people who are maybe, you know, moderate fence-sitters, and they look at this and they go, I don't want to be with these people. These people are too silly. I just can't do it. So that's yet to be seen, but... I don't know if they could top this. I want to say expect more stuff like this, but this really might be one of the top moments of Biden's first term. But having said that, who knows? Maybe they'll come up with an even goofier criticism. We'll have to wait and see. Goofier criticism, Mitch. All right, now... I want to go to the Ted Cruz story. I'm kind of, I'm going out of order order here, but I sort of want to do it. Okay. And I would argue I sort of have to do it, to, to be honest. Ted Cruz got in trouble recently. There was a, a colossal winter storm that hit Texas, the worst in a, a very long time. They're not used to getting weather like this almost ever. Um, So the state ground to a halt. You have so many people who don't have clean drinking water. You have so many people who lost power. You have pipes bursting everywhere. And really, the core problem was not what they were trying to blame. The Republicans were trying to blame windmills and the Green New Deal. Ridiculous. The real problem was that there were no regulations to winterize the power grid. If they had regulations to winterize the power grid, this wouldn't have happened. Because, you know, there's plenty of places that are way colder than Texas, and they don't have giant energy issues when it snows. Why? Because they're prepared for such things. So this was a a huge problem. In the middle of this crisis, Ted Cruz was caught in an airport going to Cancun with his family. Naturally, people really flipped out over it, and they were like, how fucking dare you? You're one, of the, you're one of the senators from Texas. You think there's not work for you to do around this crisis here and now? And uh, so he went to Cancun. Then he said, oh, on the flight, I had second thoughts about all this, and I turned around and came back. No big deal, bro. Um, the reality is, he saw the insane amount of criticism. He was like, damn, I fucked up. 
And so he's like, me, bro? I was just dropping him off. No big deal. I was going to come back anyway. I don't even know what you're talking about. Nonsense. He, of course, was going to stay down there. Then he heard the criticism and reversed it. So um, he goes on Hannity to defend himself. And here's the joyous clip we get. And, and after a couple of days after the girls being really cold at being in the teens and the 20s outside, uh, our girls asked, said, look, school's been canceled for the week. Can, can, can we take a trip and, and go somewhere warm? And, and Heidi and I as parents, we, we said, okay, sure. And so last night I flew down with them uh, to the beach, uh, and then I flew back this afternoon. I had initially planned to stay through the weekend and to work remotely there, but, but as I – as I was heading down there, I, you know, I started to have second thoughts almost immediately because the crisis here in Texas, you need to be here on the ground. And as much as you can do by phone and Zoom, it, it's not the same as being here. And so I returned this afternoon, and I'm here working to make sure to do everything we can to get the power turned on, but also fundamentally to ask the questions, why did this happen? Why was the Texas grid, which which is – regulated at the state level, it's operated at the state level, it's not a federal function, it's a state function, but why was the grid not sufficiently prepared so that 4 million Texans lost heat and power? We need to answer that and we need to make sure it never happens again in the state of Texas. To what extent? Now, Texas is very unique in that there's no federal control authority over their energy grid, it's separate and apart, which for a lot of different reasons is, is very good for Texas. Um, yep. as, as you do not have to abide by the burdensome regulations of the federal government. Very smart on Texas's part, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I think that's brilliant. Well, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I thought we learned during COVID that teleschool, telemedicine, teleworking, Zoom calls, all this other stuff changed the way we do everything. Now, I'm not assuming that the people of Texas, with all the, the natural resources of Texas, why is Texas relying on wind turbines, which, by the way, it's use it or lose it. You can't store that energy. This clip is incredible, and it's incredible because even after we know for sure what the facts are and what the answers are, Sean Hannity is doing rank propaganda. Sean Hannity is more extreme than Ted Cruz on this, and Sean Hannity is less apologetic than Ted Cruz on this. So there's a few parts of this I love. Uh, when Cruz brings up, we got to figure out, why did this happen? Why was the grid not sufficiently prepared? He's bringing it up as if it requires some sort of an investigation or a report, or like the answers are up in the air. No, we have the answers. It's really not that difficult to piece it together. Then Hannity jumps in and says, you know, Texas, they have no federal control over the energy grid. And honestly, that's been really good for Texas. They don't have to abide by the burdensome regulations. And so that's been wonderful for them. That's exactly wrong. He got it exactly backwards. He's praising the exact thing that was the problem in this situation. Do you understand that? He's flipping the truth directly on its head. If there was what he calls burdensome regulations, which other people would call common sense regulations, you would have winterized the energy grid and you would have been fine. You would have been able 
to not have pipes bursting all over the place and to have power for everybody in the midst of a winter storm. I mean, it's a, I'm floored. And, and here's the question for you guys. Is Sean Hannity just a, the biggest liar on the planet or is he the biggest idiot on the planet? What is it? Does he know as he's saying this, like, wow, I'm flipping the truth on its head. Look at me. Or is he actually dumb enough where he, he really believes all of the insane propaganda that came out instantly when this winter storm hit, where everybody tried to blame the Green New Deal and blame windmills? Just so you understand, about 20% of Texas's power comes from windmills. The windmills overperformed compared to fossil fuels, compared to uh, natural gas, and compared to coal. It was nuclear, I think, performed the best. Then it was windmills. And then after that, you had coal and, and natural gas did the worst because the infrastructure wasn't winterized. So things froze. You know, everything struggled, but nuclear did the best and then windmills did the second best. But they're bringing it up like, you know, like they know that this is the problem. And even, even Hannity trying to cover... Cruz's ass when Cruz is trying to be a little more diplomatic about it. And he's like, I thought we learned with COVID that we could do everything through Zoom, bro. This isn't, I don't even know why people are making a big deal out of this. So what? You went on vacation in the middle of an absolute crisis in Texas where you should have been around to do stuff in order to make life easier for people on the ground. I mean, yeah, Zoom calls work, bro. Stop and think about this, guys. If this was a Democrat with the exact same set of facts, how would Hannity respond? There's not even a question there. And that, like, that's all the proof that you need, that this guy is a rank partisan hack. That's what he is. He sees everything in the world through dumb partisan blinders. Everything. And, you know, he's fundamentally unserious, and nobody should take him seriously. Because, again, if this was a Democrat with the exact same set of facts, he would be losing his mind for over a week. Losing his mind. So he doesn't apply the same standard across the board. He doesn't. He likes Republicans and he hates Democrats. So he's in damage control mode for Cruz even more than Cruz is in damage control mode for Cruz. It's just so pathetic to see. But listen, man, again, the most important point is we don't need an investigation. We don't need a report. This isn't some sort of mystery that how are we going to get to the bottom of this? No. The answer is if Texas had regulations, to winterize the infrastructure, this wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't have happened. You have windmills in Antarctica, and they function. Clearly, the cold is not an impediment for that kind of power source. So everything that they're doing where they're trying to deflect and blame the Green New Deal, which isn't implemented, uh, or blame left-wing policies, it's bullshit is what it is. When the real culprit is the lack of regulation, And so you don't need some sort of an investigation or a report. What you need is to implement some basic regulations to make sure that this never happens again. That's it. But they're never going to be honest because if they're being honest about what happened here, it flies directly in the face of their ideology to the extent they have one. I mean, again, Hannity's such a partisan hack. I don't even know if you could say he has a coherent ideology. He's just a partisan hack. But yes. If you believe them, what they say is, oh, we believe in small government. We believe in free market solutions. I mean, there were, it was an amazing contrast. Ken Klippenstein tweeted this out. One thing talking about terrible price gouging going on now in Texas, and we have to stop it. It's not okay. 
And he put that right next – this is Ted Cruz saying this. He put that right next to a Ted Cruz tweet that was like, the free market is working phenomenally well for our, for our energy needs in, in Texas, just so everybody understands. We've got to get the government out of this stuff. Okay, directly contradictory. Because it's that so-called free marketplace, which is now leading to the colossal price gouging. So it, it's just – it's tough to watch when you know that what's happening – has clear answers and solutions, but they're avoiding it at all costs because they're partisan hacks and they're ideologically far right. And if they, they can't find it in themselves to admit, yeah, we needed basic regulations. If Texas already had those regulations, they would have been fine. And um, they, apparently there was an opportunity in 2011 to do exactly this, and they refused. And now a lot of good people are hurt. A lot of good. I'm not one of those people who likes to make a shitty point of like, this is what you get, y'all, for voting Republican. What'd you expect? No, 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 no. Because what this is 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 a, a moment where everybody learns. Everybody can learn, and we can adjust moving forward. And I don't care who you voted for, what your ideology is, or whatever. I'm interested in solutions. I'm interested in policy substance and what we know for sure here is if you winterize the grid and have new regulations you would have been fine and so i hope that now this is what happens going forward um but you're never going to get the straight dope from republican hacks and ted cruz is here covering his own ass because he looked silly doing what he did and he looked callous doing what he did but hannity's even worse and doesn't that say something about that right wing media ecosystem and, and politician ecosystem that, I mean, there's not, there's not an ounce of honesty in this discussion. Now, let me give you some more information, which will show you yet again what we're dealing with in Texas. What's happening in Texas went from terrible to criminal. So now there are reports of price gouging in various sectors, but probably most prominent of all, energy. So this is from the New York Times. Quote, my savings is gone, said Scott Willoughby, a 63-year-old Army veteran who lives on Social Security payments in a Dallas suburb. He said he had nearly emptied his savings account said he would be able to pay the $16,752 electric bill charged to his credit card, 70 times what he usually pays for all his utilities combined. There's nothing I can do about it, but it's broken me. Whoa. Now, he's not the only one. This is one of the most exorbitant bills that I saw, but there's a number of people with bills around $5,000. You know, people can't afford this. People can't afford this. And you have some of the energy providers in Texas who are like, who are behind the scenes and they're jovial. They're celebrating because they think they just hit the lotto and money's going to rain down on them, you know. And listen, this is what happens when you have insufficient regulations, in a number of ways. So 
you would have avoided the whole problem if you winterized the the power grid. And so you wouldn't have had the widespread outages. Okay, so that's one way in which regulation could have saved us. Another way in which regulation can and should save us is to prevent these kinds of uh, you know emergencies and disasters and crises to prevent price gouging when this stuff happens. Now, what's Texas going to do? I have no idea. Are they going to find a way to sort of punish or rein in the abuses and the excesses of the energy companies and what they're trying to do? I hope so. I hope so. But just so you understand, it's not even just with this. It's not even just with this. It's also with food and water, apparently. Like, of course, some companies and people are donating water, but they're there's also reports of price gouging for that stuff, for hotels as well, really jacking up the rates immensely. Um, so it's ugly, man. It is really, really ugly. And, you know, how many times have we seen this happen where somebody on social media will post a picture and it'll be like an empty grocery store and they'll be like, life under socialism. And it's like a picture from a place that's capitalist during some sort of a, a crisis or something, you know? Like, you could easily see a story like this about Venezuela or some other official U.S. enemy baddie government. Say, look at what it's like over there. In the midst of a crisis, you have these terrible oligarchs who are ripping people off. Can you believe that? How inhumane and wrong and undemocratic. I really dislike this. And it's like, mm, what do you think this is? You know? It's yet another example of why regulation is crucially important. Crucially important. You know, you need to be able to stop the excesses of capitalism in a variety of ways. I mean, this is one example here. There should be some sort of price cap or subsidy program or whatever. But this is the case when it comes to all externalities. That's the economic term when you talk about unintended consequences of a capitalist system. The other classic example is, of course, um, pollution. You know, it, it is cheaper for a company to get rid of whatever sort of toxic chemicals they have as a byproduct, just get rid of it in the cheapest, easiest way possible. So there's, of course, famous stories of, like, companies dumping their toxic waste into rivers, you know? And they're going to do that unless the government steps in and says, you can't do that. You need to spend the amount of money that it costs, whatever it costs, in order to dispose of this in a reasonable way that's not going to poison people. That's what's called an externality. And this is what happens when you have a totally free, unfettered, laissez-faire capitalist system. That's what it is. And so, you know, we just keep getting examples of why regulation is necessary and why regulation is important. And we needed to prevent price gouging in the wake of a disaster. And we needed it in the first place to winterize the energy grid in Texas so that this didn't happen. But here you have it, man. Here you have it. You have innocent civilians who are victims of, of a rapacious system that doesn't care about them. You know? And you can't help but think about our priorities in this country um, when you read a story like this, that the federal government will just throw whatever amount of money at anything involving war. You know, like what was it, the either one to two trillion dollar cost of the new fighter jet that didn't work originally, and then finally we got it to work, but like they just threw trillions of dollars at it. It was like, yeah, whatever. We'll spend whatever the hell we want to spend. 
the increase in the military budget from year to year, you know, you go back two years or so, the increase in the military budget for one year was more than what a free college bill would have cost for the entire nation. It was like an $80 billion increase in military spending year to year, and $60 billion would have given everybody free college. It's the priorities. It's what's, what everybody chooses or what the government and the corrupt politicians choose to spend on. Now, I get it. You know, there's, we're talking about federal spending versus state spending, and there is a difference, of course. But just the national priorities and the state priorities. I'm sure if I go through the Texas budget with a fine-tooth comb, I'm going to find a million things that make no sense and that you know, are resources that should be spent elsewhere. But here you have it. You get slapped across the face with stuff like this on a regular basis. 16000 nearly $17,000 electric bill for a 63-year-old Army veteran. It's going to bankrupt him. Is this system okay? Does this system make sense? No. I think it needs reform, and it needs it now. Okay. All right, now, let's talk about Malcolm X. On the anniversary of his death, look at this report that just dropped on Malcolm X. Almost 56 years since the day Malcolm X was assassinated in New York City, lawyers and family members of the late civil rights and black nationalist leader released new evidence they claim shows the NYPD and FBI conspired in his murder. It comes in the form of a deathbed letter attributed to a former undercover NYPD officer who claimed he was pressured by supervisors to lure two of Malcolm X's security men into committing crimes a few days before the assassination on February 21st, 1965. The arrests kept the two men from managing door security at the Audubon Ballroom in Washington Heights on the day of the shooting, according to the letter. The letter written by Raymond Wood was authorized for posthumous release by a cousin. It was read on Saturday at a press conference attended by three of X's daughters and members of Wood's family. No details about the circumstances and timing of Wood's death were provided. Quote, under, under the direction of my handlers, the letter states, I was told to encourage leaders and members of the civil rights groups to commit felonious acts. Whoa, 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 whoa. So the idea is, hey, maybe the NYPD and the FBI, so the federal government and the police, were in on the assassination of Malcolm X. Now, I know a lot of you people are listening now going, duh, like, of course. Um, But it actually isn't an of course. And it isn't an of course because if you know the biography of Malcolm X and the history of Malcolm X, you know that there actually is a a strong case that's made that it was people affiliated with and associated with the group that he was a part of, the Nation of Islam, where Elijah Muhammad was his teacher and his leader, and he, you know, supposedly learned everything from him. And what happened was Malcolm, over time, learned that this guy, who he looked up to as basically a god, um, he was a fraud. And he, you know, was basically running a cult and using his position of power and authority to fornicate, for lack of a better word, with so many of the women that were around him. And this was directly against his own teachings. And Malcolm X saw that 
hypocrisy and he couldn't reconcile it. And so that eventually led to, you know, a split between Malcolm, who was basically Elijah Muhammad's number two in command, led to a split between him and Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. And um, so what happened was there's a lot of people who are really, really loyal to Elijah Muhammad. What he would do is take uh, young black men who perhaps never had a fair shot in life and were institutionalized and had been through the system, and he helps rehabilitate them. And he helped teach them personal responsibility and, you know, how to be a man, how to be a leader, how to have your own family, how to provide, how to build a community, how to create a future that's brighter than what they have currently. And so a lot of people were fiercely and viciously loyal to Elijah Muhammad, including Malcolm until, you know, he realized that he's dude's kind of a fraud. Um, so there was an ugly breakup. There was an ugly breakup between them. And there's, you know, there were a number of attempts on his life. And the, the dominant theory was, Yes, it was basically henchmen from Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam that went after Malcolm. And that, honestly, again, if you know the history of it, if you've read his biography, that, that is not far-fetched. It's, in fact, it's the likely scenario that even if you say the FBI and the NYPD played a role in this, there's almost no doubt that also the Nation of Islam played a role in it because it got really, really ugly between them. Um, and then you got to understand that there's a there's pre Mecca Malcolm X and there's post Mecca Malcolm X. Before he went to Mecca, he was a hardcore black nationalist, and you know that's what the Nation of Islam taught, and that's what um, Elijah Muhammad taught. And then post Mecca, he really became not fully like Martin Luther King in his philosophy, but a lot more like Martin Luther King in his philosophy where Malcolm X still believed in self-defense, whereas, you know, MLK believed in um, peaceful, nonviolent resistance, didn't even necessarily believe in self-defense. He was like a pacifist. So you, Malcolm still believed in self-defense, but he went from basically literally telling white people, I don't want your help, I don't need your help in fighting for my rights, you could piss off. I'm trying to create a separate black-only nation. That's what a black nationalist and black separatist is, right? He went from that philosophy to more of a Kingian philosophy of like an egalitarian approach. People can come together. Uh, people can love each other. And I'll work with anybody for black liberation and black rights. And he wasn't as much of a black nationalist anymore. Um, so there's pre-Mecca Malcolm and post-Mecca Malcolm. And the new Malcolm pissed off everybody in the nation of Islam, big time, including Elijah Muhammad. And again, so the story is, is really complex and really interesting. He's one of the most fascinating guys I've ever learned about. And honestly, I would still say, to this day, I would still say, there's a lot of dynamic speakers out there. Nobody is a better speaker than Malcolm X. Malcolm X is probably the greatest speaker of all time, in my opinion. He's one of those people who's just so immensely captivating when he talks that you're hanging on every word he says. And it lands instantly when he says something. Like the second he says anything, you just get it. It lands. So he's, one, he's probably the best communicator I've ever seen ever. So really fascinating guy, really interesting guy. Um, what they're saying is an undercover officer was like, yeah, I was told to screw over Malcolm security guards, try to bait them into 
committing felonies so that they wouldn't be there to protect him the day he was murdered. So what does this tell me? Listen, it tells me that there were probably a number of groups that were working on killing Malcolm X. Um, I don't think it's just the NYPD and the FBI, but I certainly think they played a role because, listen, we know the history of them, right? Just like the CIA is overthrowing foreign governments and these are known facts. The FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself. Why would they be... Malcolm X was way more hardline than Martin Luther King, so why would they go soft on Malcolm X? By the way, that's how we learned that Martin Luther King was cheating on his wife is because he was getting spied on by the federal government, and so they sort of released that information. They tried to see if Malcolm X was. He wasn't cheating on his wife. Um, He was really living like a squeaky clean life in many respects. No drugs. This was when he was younger he did that, and then as soon as he you know, evolved and created this ideology. He was no longer doing that. But like, no, I don't put it past the FBI and the NYPD to want him killed. Of course they probably wanted him killed. But I still think that there was a number of hands involved here. And, you know, there's a Netflix documentary out on the killing of Malcolm X. And if I'm not mistaken, I watched it, but I was like half asleep as I was watching it. I'm pretty sure they conclude it was somebody who was a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, So you have some evidence in that direction. Now there's evidence that the NYPD and the FBI played a role. Um, I think that's probably all true. I do. I think that's probably all true. That's all correct. And, you know, listen, there's been speculation for a long time. I'm not breaking news here. I mean, you guys might not know the ins and outs and the details of this, but I've followed this really closely because I've always been interested in it. Um, there, there was speculation that Farrakhan was either one of the people who killed Malcolm or he was... Uh, he was like, he knew about it because he was in the Nation of Islam. He was in the Nation of Islam. And now he is the Nation of Islam, right? Like, he's the, he's the lead guy, and he's been for a long time. So there's always been speculation that he was involved. We don't, I don't think the documentary really touched on that much, the Netflix documentary, or it might have been Hulu documentary. I don't remember one. It's one or the other. Um, I don't think they touched on it that much, and so it's still an open question. But over the years, Farrakhan has made some eyebrow-raising, questionable comments about Malcolm, where you listen and you're like, you know stuff and you're not saying, you know, enough here. So anyway, really fascinating historical character, amazing, best speaker I've ever heard. Um, And my new operating theory is that they were all involved. So it wasn't just the NYPD and the FBI. I'm sure the Nation of Islam was involved in one way or another. Um, but, yeah, my new operating theory is that they were all involved to one extent or another. How much, you know, was one involved versus the other, I'll never know. We'll never know. We'll probably never know. We'll never know if it was primarily the Nation of Islam that did it and the FBI and the NYPD sort of helped or if it was primarily the FBI that did it and the Nation of Islam and the NYPD helped or if it was primarily the police that did it and the FBI and the Nation of Islam helped. But I do think that there's reason to believe there was a full conspiracy and cover-up and a number of people wanted him dead. Okay. All right. Let me take a break. When we come back, um, we are going to talk about how the Republicans are now waging a battle, they're waging a battle against um, democracy, 
quite literally, they're waging a battle against democracy. Wait until you hear the specifics of this. Stay right there, guys.
me holler for a dollar. Let me holler for a dollar. Okay. I've been skipping around big time, so i got to make sure I hit all my stories here. Let's talk about Republicans' hostility to democracy. Here we go. Here's how you know when you're doing the right thing. When Republican politicians are unified and ferocious in their backlash. So look at this from the Hill. Republican-controlled legislatures in almost half the states are advancing bills that would make it more difficult to pass citizen-initiated ballot measures. A backlash to the success progressive groups had in using the initiative process to advance liberal policy priorities. In Arizona, voters have in recent years approved initiatives legalizing marijuana, raising taxes on those who make more than $250,000 a year, and raising the minimum wage. Now, GOP legislators are pushing to raise the threshold of votes an initiative needs to win to 60% for most initiatives or two-thirds of the vote for measures that propose new or higher taxes. State Representative Tim Dunn, the sponsor of one version of the Arizona legislation, said the effort was necessary because his state had been targeted by outside interest groups seeking to buy their way onto the ballot. Um, So those outside interest groups that they're rallying against, that would be the American people participating in the democratic process, outside interest groups. It's like if I started some sort of initiative to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I go to, I don't know, fill in the blank with any state, Colorado, and I try to spread the message there and get people on board there, imagine somebody maligning that and smearing that and saying, Outside interest groups coming into our state from other states, unacceptable. You mean free Americans doing American things like engaging in the battle of ideas and policies and trying to convince one another what the right thing to do is? You mean freedom and like how the country is supposed to function? Now, meanwhile, to these people, they meet behind closed doors with billionaires. They meet behind closed doors with corporations and lobbyists, and they think that's totally normal But when the American people get involved, they're like, oh, my God, outside interest groups trying to buy their way onto the ballot. So I love this story, guys. I love this story because it shows you we hit a nerve. This is how you know that this is the future. This is how you know that this is the path we must take. Don't get it twisted, man. Of course, one of the long-term goals is we got to try to get money out of the political system because it's the corrupting influence of money that leads the politicians to not represent the people and to represent their corporate donors. So that's definitely the long-term goal. But the problem is that goal is nearly impossible because the Supreme Court ruled effectively that it's a constitutional issue, and the Constitution says, according to them, and they're wrong about this, but according to them, They think money equals speech. And so you have to get a constitutional amendment in order to overturn the way it works now, and that's almost mission impossible. These direct ballot initiatives already exist in many states, okay? And I think we should try to get it at the federal level as well. And the reason why they're raining down holy hell against them now is because they work. How many times have I told you? At least 80% of the time when you do these direct ballot initiatives, the position that's more intelligent ends up winning. 
I mean, it's just, it, it's, it is what it is. Like, almost every time marijuana comes up, the pro-marijuana side wins. Almost every time raising the minimum wage comes up, the let's raise the minimum wage side wins. And this even happens in states that are nominally conservative. This even ha- like in, here's a great example. In the last election in Florida, Donald Trump won, beat Biden, but the, the ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage got 60% of the vote. And so they raised the minimum wage. Donald Trump beat Biden there, but the voters also said, I want to raise the minimum wage. I'm telling you, man, the future is to try to introduce more direct democracy. Now, listen, when it comes to constitutional issues, like, yes, the whole point of a constitution is to take certain things off the table that can't be overridden by, you know, popular will. But I submit to you, outside of constitutional issues, why wouldn't you want virtually everything else to be directly voted on by the people. I'm a, I'm a big fan of democracy. And listen, I know, yes, there's a case to be made that your average Joes and Janes don't know much when it comes to history and facts. But, but, they generally will vote for whatever's in their best interest if they have to vote on the actual policy issues. And that's what's been happening. That's what's been happening. These direct ballot initiatives have been, the left has been cleaning up with these direct ballot initiatives and been winning virtually every one. And the only time that they lose is because there was a colossal, colossal uh, lobbyist effort on the other side to purposely cloud the issue, to confuse people so you don't actually know which way to vote is the right way to vote. A few times that, you know, there were losses for the left, that's why, is because of this giant, like, ad blitz and ad campaign that confused people about what's the proper position on it. But again, at least 80% of the time, the better side wins. And so we need more direct ballot initiatives, and we need to see it at a federal level, and that's the only way. It's a way to, to go around the corruption that has rotted the system. And so this is one of my top you know, uh, policies now. This hopped the list and became one of my top policies when I realized it's a way to defeat the corruption, which is easier and actually can work. Whereas getting money out of politics, while I totally support it, it's, uh, it's almost mission impossible. Whereas this works and can go right around the corruption. So I, I think we need more direct ballot initiatives. It says so much that they have to rig the game in order to try to beat us. Isn't that something? They, gotta, they, they try to make the threshold more difficult. Hey, in states where it's 50, uh, 50%, over 50% in order for something to pass, let's make it 60. In some instances, let's make it two-thirds. And, or let's make it so you need a really, really ridiculous number of signatures to even get anything on the ballot in the first place. So they have to rig the game in order to beat us, guys. Do you understand that? Because there is no, there really is no substantive argument to make for the changes that they're proposing. The only thing, there's an admission in what they're doing. And the admission is, you guys are winning. We can't beat you fair and square. So we're not going to make it fair and square. We're going to make it unfair. That's what we're going to do. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening. And that is so telling that there's nothing on the merits or on the policy or on the substance here. It's just, you guys are winning. We can't beat you. This direct democracy thing helps you guys out a lot. So let's just try to kill it by adding procedural hurdles that are totally bullshit and authoritarian. And that's the main point here. 
is that they are embracing authoritarianism. They are quite literally against the democratic will of the people, and they couldn't make it more clear. So now you know this story. Now you know who's on your side and who's not on your side. Now you know that um, we struck a nerve with these policies, man. So we all need to get on board with more direct ballot initiatives at the state level, and also we should try to get it at the federal level, because that's how you bring about real change. And we know that because it's already happening. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about nearest Tandon. Neera Tandon is in quite a bit of trouble. She, uh, you know, she's up for OMB director and very powerful position. Uh, it directly involves the budget. And uh, she had her hearings and her hearings, you know, they brought up her past of being vicious on Twitter and, you know, some terrible policy positions that she's taken. So um, since the hearing, she thought that groveling as she did would maybe get her by, but we just learned a few days ago that Joe Manchin said, I'm not supporting your attempt. This is the rarest of rare occasions where I agree with Joe Manchin. Now, his reasons I I don't think are that great, um, but I still think he's right on the overall call, which is I'm against Neera Tandon. So the Democrats, Biden and his team are like, it's all right, we're going to find the votes elsewhere. So we lost Manchin, but you know what, whatever, we're going to, we'll get Mitt Romney or we'll get Susan Collins. Well, oops, turns out they're against her as well. So now I don't know who else they think they could go to for there to be a prayer to get near a bye, but it looks like she's done, which would be glorious. So let me just read you real quick what Joe Manchin said. He said, I have carefully reviewed Neera Tandon's public statements and tweets that were personally directed towards my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, from Senator Sanders to Senator McConnell and others. I believe her overtly partisan statements will have a toxic and detrimental impact on the important working relationship between members of Congress and the next director of the Office of Management and Budget. For this reason, I cannot support her nomination. So, I mean, listen, his argument is, I don't like your mean tweets that's really not the reason to oppose her. If anything, I think the best thing she ever did was her tweet calling Ted Cruz a vampire or something, calling Mitch McConnell Voldemort. Um, It's kind of funny. And I mean, that's a true poster on Twitter if I've ever seen one. Um, I obviously dislike the stuff she said about Bernie, but I dislike the stuff she said about Bernie because I don't think it's fair. I think calling Ted Cruz a vampire is fair. And I think calling Mitch McConnell Voldemort is fair and funny. So that's not like, his reasoning is not great. But ultimately, I think he ends in the correct place. And my reasoning is quite different. I don't care about the mean tweets. What I care about is her casually and repeatedly calling for cutting Social Security and Medicare. That's unacceptable to me. But that should be off the table. And that alone, I would say strike one, you're out. I don't even need a two or three. If if that's what you're in favor of, I'm completely and utterly and vehemently against it, and so you're done. I I got nothing else to say to you on that front. Um, Also, the stuff she said about Libya I find disqualifying. How she casually said we should bomb Libya, steal its oil, so that we could pay down the deficit. 
So you got everything in there. You got imperialism and you got deficit hawkishness. It's got everything. Um, and the list goes on and on. Punching Fashakir because Fashakir asked um, Hillary Clinton a question about the Iraq war. Uh, the overt and brazen corruption that went on where she took money and Center for American Progress took money from Bloomberg and then axed a report that went after him for his anti-Muslim bias. So, I mean, I could sit here all day and just ring off policies that were terrible from near Tandon. Also, the whole point of the Center for American Progress is that it was the shadow government that was going to become the government in their minds when Hillary Clinton got elected. And so they were taking money from UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel and all these, you know, terrible sources because they were ready that when they're in office, business as usual and the status quo will continue. And they were going to be part of the corrupt status quo. So that's why you oppose Neera Tandon. You oppose Neera Tandon because she's a corrupt corporate Democrat, not because she said mean things on Twitter. But of course, they're leaning into the she said mean things on Twitter. Okay, that's not why you should oppose her, but I'll take it because you end up in the right place. So I don't think she's going to get by now. I really hope that, um, you know, Bernie grows a backbone because it is true that Neera Tandon is not only wrong on all the policies like I just explained, but also was incredibly unfair to Bernie and his movement and his people. And every smear in the book she threw at him, every single one, every one, every one, you know, racist, sexist, bigot, you name it, Neera Tandon was calling Bernie supporters that. So for Bernie, if he were to vote in favor of her, I just think that would be the saddest thing I've ever seen. So I hope that uh, he doesn't do it. Joe Manchin is right by accident. And it's been a strange thing to see people, some on the left, falling in line to support Nira simply because Republicans oppose her and simply because Joe Manchin now opposes her. That's some real partisan brain worms, and I hate to see it. And actually, I'm going to go right to that story now if I don't say so myself. And this one involves Justice Democrats. I can't lie to you guys. This video hurt. This one hurt. This is from CNN. Um, the executive director of Justice Democrats was asked about OMB pick near a Tandon. Here's what happened. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia just announced that he will vote against President Biden's pick to lead the Office of Management and Budget near a Tandon, putting her nomination in jeopardy. Manchin saying in a statement in part, quote, I have carefully reviewed near a Tandon's public statements and tweets that were personally directed towards my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, from Senator Bernie Sanders to Senator Mitch McConnell and others. I believe her overtly partisan statements will have a toxic and detrimental impact on the important working relationship between members of Congress and the next director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, let's bring in our panel, uh, Alexandra Rojas. Uh, this would be Biden's first defeat, uh, and obviously um, a defeat for Neera Tandon personally because of a bunch of tweets she's done uh, that were rather harsh. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's there's public record of, of those tweets, but the reality is that I think that Joe Manchin is the one being divisive right now. We are in the middle of a public pandemic. Joe Biden was just elected by a huge mandate. 
uh, for the American people. We have to deliver as Democrats, and we need people in positions of power who are ready and prepared to go big in this moment and not leave anyone behind. The mentality has got to be of the Democratic Party especially, uh, but any elected official, that we have to move quickly to save as many lives as possible. Uh, and I would also point out that we have no problem voting to confirm uh, other appointments of clearly uh, partisan members uh, when it was the previous Republican administration. There should be no, I think, opposition to, to some, you know, folks that are being proposed by the Biden administration who have, you know, clearly are ready to do the work and are ready to get the job done and they feel are the best prepared to do it. I just don't get it. I really don't get it. I don't understand it. Is the reasoning that Every Republican is going to oppose her, and since I don't like Republicans, I will support her. Is that the reasoning? Because that's just rank partisan brain worms. That's what that is. That's like reflexive, reactionary garbage. That's what that is. Um, Joe Manchin is accidentally correct. He's correct for the wrong reasons. He says, oh, because of her mean tweets, I don't, I'm not going to support her. That's not the right reason to oppose her. I think her tweets calling Mitch McConnell a vampire and, uh, or no, Mitch McConnell, Voldemort, and Ted Cruz a vampire, whatever it was, I think those are hilarious. It makes me actually dislike her less than I do. But the fact of the matter is, she repeatedly advocating for cut, advocated for cutting Social Security and Medicare. She said we should bomb Libya, steal their oil, and use that to pay down the deficit. She's engaged in rank corruption to the point where it's stunning. Stunning when you look at the details, you know, the clearest example being the Bloomberg example, taking money from Bloomberg and then axing a detailed report on his anti-Muslim bigotry. There is no argument that Neera Tandon is like on the left or ready to go big. None of that is true. None of that is true. In fact, I can't imagine a worse person for this position. So I don't get why the executive director of Justice Democrats would take this position. It makes no sense. It's totally anathema to the whole point of the group. The whole point of Justice Democrats is we are the insurgent outsiders who are not going to compromise and just play the usual games in Washington and line up behind this pick because all the Democrats line up behind this pick and we're going to do the hive mind thing like the other terrible groups. No, the whole point is we're supposed to be the outsiders. We're supposed to be the anti-establishment people. We're supposed to be the ones who don't go along to get along, don't play the game. We need to throw around our weight so we can actually win on our issues. If you play the same game everybody else has been playing, nothing's going to ever fucking change. And so there's no excuse for this. Like I was trying to come up with, okay, what could possibly be the reason why they would do this? Do they have assurances behind closed doors that she's going to be in favor of policy X, Y, or Z? Well, I got news for you. Even if that was true, I don't trust Neera Tandon. Why would you trust Neera Tandon? Her whole existence was to bash Bernie Sanders and this left-wing wave, this movement. She doesn't agree with us. So why would you support her? And the argument fundamentally seems to be at the end there. You, you, Joe Manchin, were cool with approving other bad appointments under Trump, so why won't you approve our bad appointment now? I have no words in response to that. I have no words. Never, Nira. I don't care that politics makes for strange bedfellows. I don't care that Joe Manchin is right for the wrong reasons. 
I don't care that the Republicans are right for the wrong reasons. I don't care. I don't care. No to Neera Tanden. No way. No way. The whole point of the Center for American Progress was to be a shadow government, was to take money from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and all these corporations so that in their minds, when Hillary got elected, the status quo can continue and they can go along to get along and they can be just as corrupt and they can continue business as usual. We're not in favor of business as usual. If you're a justice Democrat, you're not supposed to be in favor of business as usual. You're supposed to be willing to really throw around your weight and make demands and fight and fight. This is not fighting. This is partisan nonsense. All the other Democrats are for her except for Joe Manchin. So now I guess we're going to be for her too. It's sad. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. And it breaks my heart to have to talk about this and cover it and not even be able to give some sort of nominal argument for their perspective. But seriously, that's where we are. That's where we are right now. This is completely disconnected. This is anathema to the whole point of the group. There's been a number of decisions that have been in this vein. You know, I, you think I like talking about this in this way? Of course I don't. I want them to do well. Fuck, I want Biden to do well. I want Biden to do the right things. Of course I do. So do I want justice Democrats to do the right thing? Of course I do. Nobody wants it more than me. But I have to be honest with you guys, and I have to tell you what's really going on. And this, quite simply, is unacceptable. Now, thankfully, Neera is probably going to go down because Romney said no, Susan Collins said no, Manchin said no. I don't think she's going to be able to get the votes, so that's good. But the fact that she's going down, no thanks to the left, and we accidentally ended up relying on some of the worst Democrats to get the right outcome, that says a lot. That says a lot, and it's really pathetic. Next. Okay. Rush Limbaugh, as you all know, has passed away. Um, I spoke a little bit about it recently in a rambling video on the channel. Also, I spoke about it uh, during Crystal Kyle and Friends with Glenn Greenwald and asked him his opinion on whether or not it's acceptable to ever celebrate somebody's death. Um, this video popped up for me, and I had to share it with you because I think it says a lot about Rush Limbaugh. It kind of sums up his entire career in this little 60-minute soundbite from the 1990s. Take a look at his philosophy and his approach to his show. What are you trying to do with this show? I'm trying to attract the largest audience I can and hold it for as long as I can so that I can charge advertisers confiscatory advertising rates. This is a business. You're in it for the money? Uh, sure. Of course, I'm doing a lot of this for money. But I, I don't want it to just stop there. I mean, everybody does what they do, do for the money. If somebody tells you it's not the money, believe me, it's the money. That is quite the admission. That is quite the admission. And I have to admit, I hadn't thought about this beforehand when it came to Rush, you know. Everybody knows my approach to these things is I will assume that people mean what they say and are operating in good faith until it's proven otherwise. So the default assumption is I think you mean what you say and you believe it. 
Um, and then the only time I will override that and start thinking about it in a different way is if there's evidence and if there's proof that actually, no, somebody's not acting in good faith, that um, they have nefarious ulterior motives. And I never really thought about it in the case of Rush Limbaugh I was always just caught up in the goofy stuff that he says and dumb stuff he says and terrible stuff he says that I never really stopped to think about where he fell on that spectrum. But he just told you right there. Like he just, he told you all the way back in the 1990s. He was saying, listen, yeah, I do it for the money. That's why I do it. That's where I do it. Okay, well then, listen, he's admitting you shouldn't trust a single word I say. What he's saying is, you can't accept what I'm telling you at face value. It's not necessarily what I actually believe. It's, you know, fundamentally, I'm playing a character. And my character is like the shock jock conservative host. And so really, nobody should trust a single word I say, because I'm an entertainer. And at the end of the day, all I care about is getting as big an audience as possible, holding that audience, and making money. That is quite the admission, man. And I could tell you for sure, because I'm in what is effectively the same business that he was in, I can tell you for sure. Very few people I know in this business have that approach. I think there are probably some who have that approach. I think, you know, Dave Rubin is a good example of somebody who is just trying to find a lane which he can monetize the most and get the most famous from. Um, but most of the people that you know in left political commentary, whether I agree with them a lot or disagree with them a lot, it doesn't matter. I actually trust that the overwhelming majority of them are not simply doing it for the money and to get as big an audience as possible. You know, and most of them mean what they say, believe in what they're talking about, and the other stuff just is a byproduct of doing good work. You know what I mean? Listen, that one million percent is my approach to this stuff. That if I, if I, let's say I tell the truth and my audience grows at a very slow pace versus you say to me, Kyle, you can tell people 80% of the time what you believe, but 20% of the time you can't. You got to bullshit them. But your audience will grow four times as fast. I'd say I... I literally cannot bring myself to do the 80% truth, 20% bullshit approach because I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I'd feel gross. I'd feel disgusting. I'd feel like a fraud, and I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. And I reckon most of the people in this space, ones I agree with and disagree with, they, they're honest. They're telling the truth as they see it. And all the other things that may or may not happen to come along with it, like a, a bigger audience or money, that's just the byproduct. And of course, everybody hopes that it works out for them and that they can pay the bills and that they get a big enough audience, right? But that you can't rush clearly put the cart before the horse here. And he was admitting, yes, it's, all, it's about the money. It's primarily about the money. It's primarily about getting as big of an audience as I possibly can and holding it. And whatever I got to do, I'll be your little dancing monkey. You know, I'll be a clown. I'll put on the nose and the hat, the, hat, the, the hair, the multicolored hair. I'll, I'll be your clown. And I really do think that says everything. Listen, let me just give you one example. When Crystal and I were thinking about Crystal Kyle and friends, you know, before we really made the decision that we're going to do it and all this stuff, 
we spoke to a number of people uh, who are in, you know, the podcast business, I guess you could call it, and what they do and how they monetize it and all this stuff. We could have made the decision to have ads, for example, do the readout ads like most podcasts do. And without a doubt, we would have at the very least double or tripled the amount of money that we make. Maybe even quadrupled the amount of money that we make. Her and I made a decision that we will purposefully sacrifice that and we don't care that we're going to make less because we wanted to do something that more coincided with our beliefs and our, a business model that we find more ethical and more sustainable. And so we were like, no ads. We're going to have no ads at all, which, again, you go talk to anybody else who's in a similar position, they'll tell you that Crystal and Kyle are fucking insane for saying no to all ads. Um, and we decided let's do, let's actually build the model. That's the small dollar subscription model. And that if people like it, you can pay for the video. It's $5 a month. You get the, the video. And if you don't want to pay for the video, totally fine. You get the audio version for free. So everybody gets all of the content. The tiny little upgrade is the video. And it's just $5 a month. And that's, we decided to go with the subscription model because we thought it was more ethical, even though we knew we're leaving a tremendous amount of money on the table. Now, not to toot our own horns, even though that's exactly what I'm doing, but compare that to Rush Limbaugh, what you just heard from Rush Limbaugh. And I don't know about you guys, but I could smell it from a mile away when somebody has, cares too much about this stuff. You can sense it. You can sense it. You can see it. And you're like, oh, my God. There, you know, when, especially when people take ads for companies that you know damn well they don't use the company, they don't use the product, they don't even necessarily like it, they're just doing the ad because it's just what they do. Because there, there are some people who care more about the business angle and the money and the fame than the actual message and the point of the work. You know? And so that, there's a, a dividing line on this stuff where some people view what they're doing like it matters, and if anything, it's more of an art than a business, and then there are those who think it's just a business. And, hey, man, just gimme, gimme, gimme. Whatever opportunities come my way in terms of monetizing and making more money, I'm going to take it whatever it is. And, listen, I, you know, I still, to, my, to this day, I pride myself on never having talked to an advertiser. There's, of course, the big seltzer sellout thing, which is a story in and of itself, but, you know, I pride myself on having never talked to an advertiser. And I feel kind of dumb for not having the moment in regards to Rush Limbaugh where, like, it was a realization of, like, yeah, he probably is doing it for the money. But when you look at his opinions, now hearing him say that, when I look at the things he said over the years, I'm like, oh, my God, it was so obvious. Because I actually don't think he's or anybody is as dumb as he portrayed himself as being. I mean, his greatest hits, I jotted them down the other day for the video. He thought hurricane warnings were a liberal hoax. He said climate change is fake. He mocked people who believed in evolution. He was a creationist. He said uh, of the Big Bang, how do scientists know it's real? They never saw it. He thought COVID was a hoax. He compared Obama to Hitler and Stalin. He said Zimmerman was the victim and Trayvon wasn't. He said compared hungry kids to animals. He was for the Iraq war. He was for torture. He was for every tax cut for the rich. He was for Wall Street deregulation. 
He apparently celebrated AIDS deaths on air. He said, quote, Eric Garner wasn't put in a chokehold. He defended Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, the list goes on and on. All of the grotesque and odious opinions. And now, having seen the clip of him saying, it's all about the money, now I see how anybody could say these things. Because he didn't actually believe all that shit. There's no way he believed all that shit. How dumb do you have to be to believe some of the things I just said? He has to be one of the dumbest people on the planet. But he admitted it there. Don't trust a word I say, because it's really more about the money. It's more about getting an audience. And he viewed himself as a conservative shock jock. He viewed himself as like, I'm the conservative version of Howard Stern. And so now it all makes sense now. It all makes sense. So he's an odious figure with a toxic impact on the body politic. And really, he was doing it, didn't necessarily believe a word he said. We'll never know exactly how much of what he said he believed. Is it 50%? Is it 70%? Is it 8%? We'll never know. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. After seeing that clip, now I know. There's no way he believed everything of what he said. No way. No way. And, you know, you determine for yourself what you think is worse. Is it worse to be just the biggest idiot on the planet and be wrong about everything? Or is it worse to actually not be that dumb, but be that dumb for the money? So I'll leave that up to you. That's a value judgment. You can make up your own mind. But yeah, I think it's, uh, I think this clip puts it in perspective. And by the way, pretty sure this might be the last ever secular talk clip on Rush Limbaugh, which is like the end of an era because we've done so many clips on Rush Limbaugh over the years. And um, not a better way to end it than Rush, in his own words, basically describing how he's a fraud. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about the social media app Clubhouse. So I've seen a number of articles on this new social media app called Clubhouse. Um, This passage here is in the Hill. Clubhouse, an emerging social media platform born during the coronavirus lockdowns, has given users a chance to connect through intimate audio conversations with virtual strangers, even while isolated at home. But as the platform continues to grow, the same model that has allowed users to connect while physically apart is raising concerns about how the app will handle the spread of misinformation. Unlike traditional social media platforms where users' footprint is more permanent, Clubhouse chat room conversations excuse me, conversations are not recorded by the app, making it essentially impossible to discern the spread of false information or harassment. Emerson Brooking, resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, told The Hill, quote, because your words don't follow you the same way they do with a Twitter account, you do feel more relaxed, and that means the app is working as intended. But of course, it means it also poses particular dangers. Okay, so um, here's why we're talking about this. I've seen a bunch of articles now that basically make the argument we need to police social media more, censor more, deplatform more, filter more, have more rules, have more enforcement, 
There's been a number of hearings in Congress on this exact issue, on this exact issue. And so now the new hot social media app, Clubhouse, um, I guess the best way to describe it is almost like a Twitter for audio. Um, But it's not really like Twitter because, again, there's no log of it. And, like, you're invited into these groups and you can talk to people and it just, you know, it goes away into the ether, whatever you're saying. But one of the things they go on to bring up is, like, the anti-vax people are, like, thriving on this app. And the, the whole tone of it and feel of it is, like, we need to do something. We need to do something. There's too much misinformation. This is, has too much of a negative impact. We got to act. And my question is always the same with these articles and these arguments. Who gets to decide stuff? Who gets to decide stuff? And it's mighty convenient that it's always like the legacy media outlets, like the New York Times or CNN. Like, they're the ones who always come up with these arguments and push them relentlessly. Why? they have the most to gain because these big social media companies, if they actually start enforcing the rules that they're being prodded to enforce, um, they would rely on outlets like the New York Times or CNN to be the fact checkers. And so they have a conflict of interest in the discussion because no matter what, they're the ones who get to call the shots and be the, the ministry of truth And by the way, that's one of the main problems with this whole argument is they get stuff wrong all the time. All the time they get stuff wrong. CNN was one of the worst defenders when it came to Russiagate. You know, New York Times, virtually every mainstream media outlet helped do the propaganda that led us to the illegal and offensive war in Iraq. That alone should let you know this is not, there can be no ministry of truth because nobody gets it right all the time. You could try to get it right all the time. You're not going to get it right all the time. And I guarantee you the only people who actually feel the brunt of censorship and deplatforming, it's always people who aren't powerful, you know? And in some cases you could say, yeah, it's really a conspiracy theory. The anti-vax stuff, truly a conspiracy. The Stop the Steal stuff, truly a conspiracy. But of course this shit is going to impact the left as well as the right. It, it always, always works like that. If you talked in 2016 about how the, the DNC rigged it against Bernie, you would be correct based on the WikiLeaks. But the powers that be did not agree with that narrative, and they would have tried to pull your stuff down if you were making that argument. It's true. It's true. You know, if you brought up Syria and the gas attack and you were skeptical, which you should have been because now whistleblowers have proven that, in fact, the skeptical people were correct they would have went after you for if you were correct at the time. So you have to understand the same mindset that gets people to pull down far-right Twitter accounts is the same mindset that gets the Antifa Twitter accounts pulled down. It's going to affect anybody who's not in power. And so here you have a situation where mainstream media is begging for more censorship and more deplatforming and more authoritarian controls on these social media apps. And it's like, whatever they're calling for creates bigger problems than it solves. Because I don't trust the New York Times or CNN, or, and I don't trust the government to, you know, accurately determine what's true and what's not true and what's allowed and what's not allowed. I would much rather have a system with freedom and some misinformation being spread around 
than authoritarianism and still misinformation is being spread around, but it's just the officially approved establishment misinformation. So it's really as a matter of principle, you should lean more on the side of freedom. And we all get it. You can't do direct threats of violence. Of course, you can't abuse somebody. Of course. But to censor based on the content is never okay. You can't censor based on the content. And that's what people are calling for. Stop the spread of misinformation. You can make the argument that any, like, okay, forget the social media apps. What if you have a bunch of people just meeting in person? You know, after COVID, everybody's meeting in person. You have these little clubhouse gatherings and people are talking to each other. You could argue that any gathering of people, the spread of misinformation can be rampant. Does that mean we should ban the gathering of people or ban certain people from showing up? It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's incredibly authoritarian. And now you have a situation where mainstream media, this is what they call for on a regular basis, on a regular basis. And the government is, you know, and the tech companies are sort of now being prodded in that direction. They're leaning in that direction. And it's terrifying because this is going to create more problems than it's going to solve. And it's by definition authoritarian. So honestly, I don't even use Clubhouse, but hands off fucking Clubhouse and hands off all the social media uh, outlets because you want them to do something they're not equipped or capable to do. And you want to create a ministry of truth, which will never work. It'll never work, and it's wrong in principle. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Fox News and Iran. Fox News is doing fear-mongering for Iran. Uh, excuse me, fear-mongering against Iran. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
Jumping around has made it difficult to uh, keep up with my place. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about Fox News and their Iran propaganda. I always try to cover these segments because uh, nobody else really does it, and I think it's incredibly important to go into the specifics of this kind of propaganda. So here we have Fox News talking about Iran. They're talking to a former Trump administration official here. And this is just, it's a tsunami of lies. Just this week, Iran fired off missiles at a U.S. military base in Iraq, uh, killing a civilian contractor But, you know, Obama official Ben Rose saying, you know, Iran is right to be angry that the U.S. broke the Iran deal. What's your reaction to that? Look, we have – they may not like it. The Biden administration may not like how Donald Trump got the leverage, but Donald Trump has gotten the United States enormous leverage over Iran. Economic leverage, oil leverage, um, military leverage, the whole region – is now looking at Iran as a power that needs to be contained and a power that should not be allowed to go back to where it was. The Biden administration should use that leverage to renegotiate a deal that does, in fact, stop Iran's nuclear program, that does, in fact, stop Iran's relationship with al-Qaeda and Iran's support for terrorism. My worry, Liz, is that they have the uh, Biden administration and their zeal to kind of get back to the good old days of the Obama team, they're now giving away everything up front in hopes that maybe Iran sort of might continue to be good in the end. You know, when you negotiate with a country like Iran, you negotiate from a position of strength. And when you give up all of your negotiating power, all of your chips, you show all of your cards up front, you're not going to get them to go along with everything. They'll just pocket what they've gotten and say, you know, what are you going to give me next? So, Liz, I think it's a big mistake to have this approach that they're taking, and I think it will only lead to the one thing they promise it will never happen which is a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, Liz. There's already a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, and you have Israel to thank for it. So, yeah, it's kind of amazing how they have this conversation and they just exclude Israel and pretend like they don't have nukes, even though everybody knows they have nukes. I mean, the reason why Iran wants weapons is because they need it for a deterrent to aggression from the U.S. and Israel. Now, you might dislike that I'm saying that. It might trigger you, but our own intelligence agencies have admitted such things when it comes to a number of our official state enemies, like North Korea, for example. They've admitted, like, yeah, to the extent they want a weapon, it's really because they don't want to get toppled. Because they saw what we did in Libya, where... We made Gaddafi give up his weapons, then he voluntarily gave up his weapons, and then we toppled him anyway. Because Gaddafi saw what we did in Iraq, and he was like, oh, Americans, I love you. Here, take my weapons. No problem here. I could stay in power, right? And we were like, sure, bro, and then we toppled him. So the thing that's impressive about this is every part of it is a lie. Every part of this commentary is a lie. Every part of it. 
the, the core claim is Biden's giving away everything to Iran up front. First of all, no, he's not. Second of all, he should, because we, the Iran deal, and we pulled out of the Iran deal, and they continued following it even after we pulled out, because Europe and other countries were involved in it. And it was only after the whole thing imploded that finally they were like, okay, I guess we're going to go back to, you know, making nuclear weapons. And then we turn around and say, oh, how could you? We broke the deal, and then we pulled out of the deal. We're in no position to lecture them about dick. And if we were to get back in the deal, a.k.a. give them everything up front, well, then, then they would get back in the deal. But the idea that we violate it, we pull out of it, and then we tell them, okay, now you guys get back in it first. We broke the deal. Why is it not incumbent on us to get back in the deal first? We're the problem here. And you're, you're emboldening the hardliners in Iran, where now they look like geniuses because the moderates look stupid for ever trusting the United States and ever doing a deal with the United States, because now they know a, a deal with us is not worth the paper it's written on. And then the final point is, she brings up the relationship with al-Qaeda that Iran has. This is how you know. These are propagandists. These are liars. These are neocon war hawk war criminals, because... Iran doesn't have a relationship with al-Qaeda. Iran and al-Qaeda are mortal enemies. It's a Shia theocracy. Al-Qaeda is hardcore fundamentalist Sunni, Salafists, or Wahhabists. I don't think she's dumb enough to not know that. I think she knows that. And so she's lying on purpose. And I'm just amazed at how, like, the fact that this this gets played in the U.S. as news when every word out of her mouth was a lie. It was genuinely impressive how everything was untrue. And again, this is why I feel the need to talk about this, because nobody else is going to talk about this. You know, some people watch this and they just assume some of what this woman's saying is true, and they think like, oh, Iran's a real threat, and they're the real problem. We're the problem! By the way, we're also illegally sanctioning them. We've sanctioned medicine from getting into that country, and people are dying because they can't get the medicine that they need. And then it went to the International Criminal Court, the International Criminal Court said, you guys got to stop sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. And we said, go fuck yourself. We pulled out of the International Criminal Court, and we continued sanctioning the medicine. So we're hurting the civilian populations. We broke the deal. We ripped up the deal. We sanctioned them and are hurting the civilian populations. Then we have the nerve to play the victim and act like they're the aggressor? How stupid do you have to be? But they're not stupid. I think they're just liars. I think they're just liars. And by the way, what does this show you? To the extent that anybody in the Biden administration was thinking, oh, we need to be more hawkish because that's how we'll get the Republicans off our ass if we act like them. I don't know if that's their motivation, but to the extent any of them are thinking that, take a look at how they're responding anyway. You're acting incredibly hawkish. You're acting just like the Trump administration when it comes to the Iran deal. And guess what? They're still attacking you from the right and saying you're not being hawkish enough. You're not being militaristic enough. You're giving away everything up front, even though you've done nothing. And if anything, you've just continued Trump's policies. So there is no appeasing the unappeasable. These are bad faith smear merchant liars. And they're war hawks and they're neocons. And they want nothing except regime change. And their actions and their words prove it. Okay. Next. Here we go, baby. We are going to talk about Wall Street bets. 
the clowns at Fox Business rushed in to defend Wall Street from Reddit, and they somehow turned the story into another opportunity to bash Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. talk to you. I got on the phone and talked to David Batten. He's the former VP yes. and general counsel, interactive broker, yes. former SEC, CFTC, okay? Yes. Big deal. Really looks at this with no political lens whatsoever. He says there's no evidence of any conspiracy. He's listened to the testimony right. all day. Uh, no disadvantage to the retail investor. A much higher likelihood that Robinhood restricted trading to manage their risk, to your point. That's the key. Because they got that margin call, yes. okay? Yes. So that, and that's in the fine print, that they can shut down trading on that at any point but, if they have to, and that's what they did. They have to do it. By the way, gigantic firms have done this from time to time, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch. We, I think we have a thought. We have a sound on tape of what the Robinhood fellow said. Can we still play that? Despite the unprecedented market conditions in January, at the end of the day, what happened is unacceptable to us. To our customers, I'm sorry, and I apologize. Well, okay, I'm sorry he's sorry, but I didn't hear much uh, on that one. Again, you've got the basic points as far as I know. He, I'm not necessarily an expert. He was dealing with an unprecedented situation, Larry. So does he, can he look back and, and say there were some things he could have done better? Could he have been better prepared capital-wise? I don't you know, know. I don't know what he could have done. Sometimes better. deep yogurt happens. I mean, that's <laughs> way of but, life. But one takeaway is you've got lawmakers on that committee, AOC, yes. Elon, Omar. Yes. They're now saying tax the rich. Yes. On these stock trades, um, AOC. It's really something to see these Wall Streeters who treat our economy as a casino. Oh yes. She wants to try to prevent all this high frequency. How on earth did they end there? They're talking about the Robinhood app. The Robinhood app and the head of the Robinhood app have taken money from some of these hedge funds that were getting hosed by the people on Reddit, and so they restrict trading, which screws the regular investors on Reddit and helps out the hedge funds that have given them money. This is the clearest example of rank, brazen corruption happening right in front of our face. And somehow the idiots on Fox Business, although again, I'm not sure that they're idiots or they're just nefarious liars, but what they do is they somehow turn it into an opportunity to bash Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and... They mock the idea of taxing the rich and doing a Wall Street transaction tax, and and they mock the idea, like Ocasio-Cortez says, yeah, Wall Street treats our economy as a casino. How is that that debatable? There, There is no debate there. That's obviously correct. That's obviously correct. And of course, the House always wins. And what happened? The hedge funds were the House, and they bought the government, and they buy other people who are the heads of other companies. And so would you look at that? The guy who was the head of the Robinhood app restricted trading on AMC and GameStop and some others, and that wound up helping and protecting the hedge funds that were getting hosed that were paying Robinhood and the head of Robinhood. So, I mean, again, it's all, it's all a joke. It's all a, a scam, and it's right in front of our eyes to see. And... What do they do on Fox Business? They obfuscate. They obfuscate on the side of the corrupt parties rigging the system. They obfuscate in a way that's in favor of the hedge funds that made shitty bets and were exposed. 
they obfuscate in favor of the Robinhood app, which was it, probably it should be illegal the way that they were restricting trading there. They obfuscate in their favor. So would you look at that? Fox Business comes out on the side of big money. Don't ever let anybody tell you that these clowns are pro-worker, that these clowns are in favor of the regular guy, the little guy. I've never seen a more clear example of the opposite being true. I mean, they're all in to defend the hedge funds. These are people who made terrible bets. They were exposed. They got hammered, and then they had to rig the system to stop themselves from losing everything. And, of course, Larry Kudlow and this other airhead are defending them and mocking AOC and Ilhan Omar, when just so everybody understands, in the wake of this happening the first few days, you had everybody from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Ted Cruz saying the same fucking thing. The same thing. But no. See, now the big money people have made their move and Fox Business can't help themselves but line up with the big money people and act like there's nothing to see here. What a total and complete joke. These guys are frauds. These guys are pathetic. And they'll always line up to protect big money. That's exactly what happened with Fox Business Network during the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. That's exactly what happened on CNBC, where Larry Kudlow had a show during the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. These are people who supported the no-strings-attached bailouts that went to the failures who bankrupted their companies and crashed the world economy. He supported that. He supported that. People who are losers, who failed in the free market, who then got bailed out, and these people supported that. Why? Because they always line up with the big money. They always line up with big money. They don't have any principles. They don't have an ideology. It's where's the power? Where's the power? Where's the money? And that's where they end up, and that's what you see here. So somehow they go back to their pet issue of bashing the left, when the left was correct about this. The left was correct about this. So anyway... Larry Kudlow has somehow been wrong about everything when it comes to economics, and yet he was just in the White House as a top economics advisor. That says everything, doesn't it? Okay, next. This is actually one of my favorite clips of the day. So this is one of my favorite clips of the past year. Um, Fox is going to do their normal fear-mongering over cancel culture, which is you know just a day that ends in Y on Fox. But one of the hosts, Bill Hemmer, accidentally gives us one of the funniest lines of all time. These people are always going to be important to this country. So you have to wonder, are we in a transition period in our country right now where our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren might not think of these people the way we do. They might not be taught in the same way we know them now. I say more statues, not less, not fewer. More opinions, more ideas, not less. Way, way back in the day when I was first in, uh, working in local news, I was at uh, a CBS affiliate in Springfield, Illinois, and Lincoln was everything, a, a part of every – uh, aspect of the city, and in, in fact, there was even, I think, a sandwich named after Abraham Lincoln. I hope they don't take the sandwich name. Uh, I tell you, if they start canceling these American presidents, they're going to come after Bible characters next. 
Yeah. You couldn't. You could. Mark my words. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. These guys are something special. Imagine bringing that up as if it's like, <laughs> as if you're making a good point. Like, pff, next thing you know, they're going to start criticizing Bible characters. Yeah, if there's anything that's ripe for criticism, it's like holy books. I mean, there's so much carnage and savagery and barbaric actions in the Bible. I mean, rape, everything, you name it. You name it, genocide, rape, pure evil acts, everything is in there. And so if you're going to criticize characters in the Bible, it's like, that should be the most obvious thing in the world. That should be, like, encouraged. What do you want people to do? Read stories of, like, rape and murder and pillaging and just turn their critical mind off and just sort of absorb it and think, this is great, bro. I mean, it's just, like, they're so childish. This is like preschoolers kind of thinking. Mommy and Daddy said Bible's pure truth. And so you can't criticize pure truth because then you're going to go to hell and not heaven. Okay, Bill Hammer. Okay, man. Okay. Uh, Even the idea of, like, they're canceling presidents now. Next they're going to cancel people in the Bible. As if there's, like, nothing to actually go through the record of former presidents about. Like, I mean, guys, listen. There's a lot of good in this country and that this country has done. I'm not painting the everything is negative picture because I think that's bullshit. I think that's not correct. Um, But these guys want to overlook all of the negative shit. Are they going to have an honest conversation about the Trail of Tears, the Native American genocide, Jim Crow, slavery, indentured servitude? I mean, this is part of our history. And in the same way that nobody should downplay or deny the positive aspects, nobody should downplay or deny the negative aspects. And so, yeah, I encourage open and honest conversations about the history of our presidents. Why wouldn't you do that? The only reason you wouldn't want to do that is because you're a propagandist and you want to enforce the notion of American exceptionalism and superiority. That's the thing. They're American supremacists, these people. Now, by the way, the conversation started with them. Uh, about statues and how now there's going to be a review of various statues. I think in Chicago, I don't know all the details of it, but on the list of like the statues that are under review include like Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. And now they're not saying we're going to pull those down. They didn't say that. They said we're going to review all these statues. Okay. They're acting like they're going to pull them down, number one. That's not necessarily true. In fact, I bet that they're not going to do that. Um, But they're acting like it's outrageous to even have the conversation. And funny enough, I think that's the cancel culture aspect of this. Is like, we're not even allowed to have the conversation about, you know, what what are the utility of statues? Does it make sense to, you know, build mythologies that override the true nature of a person that we then shut our minds off and try to worship said characters? Now, listen, again, I think there's a wide range of opinions on this that are possible, but also a wide range of opinions that are reasonable on this front. And I'm amazed that anybody acts like there isn't an interesting conversation to be had here, because I think there's a very interesting conversation to be had. Um, You know, I don't even know exactly where I land, but off the top of my head, like my gut instinct says, 
I'm fine with statues existing, but we should actually try to build the statues of the people that are the closest possible to beyond reproach. You know what I mean? Martin Luther King, for example. Maybe we should have more statues of Martin Luther King. Um, we should have statues to Jonas Salk, who created the polio vaccine and then um, gave it out and said, I'm not patenting this. Would you patent the sun? So save so many lives as a result of that. And the list goes on and on. So like, there are characters who are overall, the net impact was way more positive than negative. I think t- if we're going to have statues, those should be the statues. And I think that there is a reasonable discussion to be had about the deification of characters that were overwhelmingly negative, like Andrew Jackson, you know, like, should he really be on the $20 bill? I mean, if you're really looking at it objectively and he did have a net negative impact, no, he probably shouldn't. Now, is that at the top of my list of things to do? Well, no, but that's only because I don't really value symbolism as much as some other people do. So, it, and that's just me and my bias and my opinion and my priorities on it. But, like, in, but these are still interesting conversations to have. And funny enough, the response on Fox is always the same. That, like, shut up and keep everything exactly as it is. Well, that's not intelligent. That's not intellectual. And again, I could argue you're doing cancel culture there because what you're saying is shut down the whole conversation. I don't even want to have the conversation. That's kind of silly, isn't it? But yes, if I'm being honest, I would say, yeah, probably most of the characters in the Bible should be criticized, should be critiqued. Um, and it would be honest to do such things given what happens in the Bible. Most of the presidents should be critiqued and viciously so because there's been a lot of there hasn't been many good ones, if I'm being honest with you, where their net effect was more positive than negative. Um, so I encourage all that. And I encourage the conversation about statues and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And, you know, I even see the opinion of, like, just don't build statues to, to people anymore. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to say. I don't necessarily agree with it. I'd have to be talked into it and convinced on that front. But it's not crazy. But these people make it seem like, oh, it's crazy. Just because you're all, like, they're used to the myth-making, you know, and the propaganda that we've been spoon-fed from when we were kids about our country and our leaders and and all that stuff. And and they want to cling to it in the same way that, like, a toddler clings to the tooth fairy existing or Santa Claus existing. You know what I mean? Like, that's the sense I get. Um when I listened to them talk about it. But it was just it became extra funny when he really brought up um, the Bible characters being canceled. If there were ever characters to cancel, like, they're kind of close to the top of the list, given what's in that book. Okay. All right, final story of the day, y'all. This is an I told you so segment. I've been telling everybody I know for a long time now, since early on in COVID-19, that um, not only should you be wearing a mask, I mean, that's obvious at this point, the overwhelming majority of people get it and agree, um, you should be wearing some sort of protection for your eyes. I don't care what kind of protection it is. Um, Sunglasses will help massively 
Regular glasses will help massively. If you really want to go all out, you wear goggles. Um, but I've been saying it for a long time that not only should you be covering, you know, yourself with a mask, you should have the glasses on. Well, now, sweet, sweet vindication. Now, I didn't make this up beforehand. I had read it somewhere, but this is further verification. Glasses wears up to three times less likely to catch coronavirus, study suggests. So they say, this is a study that happened in India, and they said um, it had more to do with the fact that people who don't wear glasses touch their eyes more with their hands than people who do wear glasses. If you wear glasses, you're a lot less likely to touch your eyeballs with your hands. Um, that's what they say. Um, my speculation, and you would need more studies to prove this, but my speculation is it's not just that. It's also that you have these big openings into your body that are not covered, and if somebody coughs, the virus can go directly into your eyes, and then it's in your body, and then it can do what viruses do. So I, I don't remember where I read it previously, but I read it somewhere previously, and then also I took note of the fact that every time there's a doctor working on these cases, what are they wearing? Not only are they wearing the N95 mask, oftentimes they're double masking, right? But then beyond that, they have the giant face shield. And the idea behind the face shield is stop anything from getting in their eyes. So I never understood why, you know, people weren't making it a bigger deal that, like, the eye cover is just as important as the mask cover. Well, now some vindication. Three times less likely to catch COVID. Three times, according to this study. That's a big deal, man. That's a big deal. So... What I'm curious about is what would the numbers look like if from day one, from day one, everybody was wearing a mask and everybody was wearing some sort of eye protection? How, how much of this could have been pre prevented? Because we just crossed 500,000 COVID deaths in this country, Five, half a million. I'm very curious what it could have looked like in a situation where everybody wore masks, and everybody had some eye coverage as well. I'm, I don't know what the number would be, but it definitely would have saved so many lives. I just can't give you specifics. But there you have it, man. Listen, I'm telling you, straight up, cover your eyes too when you're out in public. Wear your mask, but cover your eyes too. I don't care how you cover them, but cover them. If you want to get goggles, go crazy and get goggles. If you just want to get sunglasses, wear sunglasses everywhere. Or if you want to get, you know, a pair of glasses, glasses that are fake lenses, basically, that, don't, that aren't prescription, buy those. But whatever it is, get something, because it could prevent you from getting COVID, and that's everything. All right, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day. It's disgusting here in New York. I love you. I'm out. Peace.